0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org.
1: Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I remember as
0: a child dealing with such intense fear. There was a when I grew up, the house I grew up in was on an acre and a half, and the house was on the front part of the property. So our my backyard was huge. In other words, uh, it was massive. And and I used to play back there all the time. But at night. I would, would look out there and the light of our back porch ended right about where my dad's shed was. And occasionally I would have to go out there at night, maybe lock the shed or, or whatever. And I remember being so afraid to be out there. I don't know what I thought happened in the shed at night. I don't know what I thought happened behind the shed at night. But whatever it was, I was terrified of it. And I just couldn't bring myself to go outside most of the time without some kind of flashlight or something to go along with me, a dog, a family member, something. And I remember thinking as I watched my dad just walk casually out to the shed to do whatever he had to do at night, I remember thinking, he must not be afraid of anything. I guess adults, it just something happens at some point in your life and you just... Adults just stop being afraid of everything. And then I became an adult. And I realized, you're still very much afraid. But the fears just change. You fear now being able to provide for your family. You fear raising your children to be followers of Christ. You always fear what your children are into or thinking or what's going to happen to them, regardless of how old they are. You fear being a godly example to your children, you fear change. Hmm? Amen, somebody. You can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. You fear failure. You fear sharing the gospel with somebody. You fear invading armies. You, fe- you fear the political climate. Turn on the news. Read the internet. It's nothing but fear These and many more are all the fears that we take on as adults. If anything, fear becomes more real to us now than it ever was when we were a kid. The monsters under our bed never transpired into anything. But the fears that we have seem so much more real because it seems like they could happen. Or are they? It's a good question for us. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 46. And, and I really want at the end of this psalm for it to be an anthem really for every Christian. For every Christian to be, to be able to read this psalm and see it as a victory march for you. I want it to be the drumbeat that we march to. See, the heart of Psalm 46 is really to give believers such a confidence in what the Lord is doing and what he will do that we actually become fearless people that fear just absolutely disappears from our vocabulary so the psalmist is going to to give us three assurances about what the Lord uh, about the Lord and that if we really believe them would make us absolutely fearless so if you look at the basic structure of this psalm the way it sort of is laid out, it breaks down really nicely into three parts, and each one of them, you can see in the text there in front of you, ends with the word Selah. Which again, as we've talked about a number of times in here, you, you, you is probably something like a rest, a time for just to think about what was just being said. It's a pause in the, in the music, as it were. And you can see those Selahs there in verse 3 and verse 7 and verse 11. And each section of this text, as we go through it, is going to paint a slightly worse picture than the one that came before it. So it, it doesn't get more comforting as it goes, or maybe I guess oddly it kind of does. It get, it, it, but it progressively gets worse in the paragraph. But in each paragraph, believers have assurance that God provides for His children. Uniquely for His children. He provides for them, and that we have no reason to be afraid. And so I want to make mention of these assurances as we go. The first assurance is that God will provide his people with strength in affliction. God will provide his people with strength in affliction. This is what the psalmist is promising uh, that God is for his people. His people are protected and strengthened in the storms. Look at the first three verses here. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In the first verse there, the psalmist says, makes this promise that God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And in verses 2 and 3, then he goes on to explain a little bit more about what that means. The promise is that God is our refuge and our strength. In other words, He is actively working in your favor. For all of His children, He is actively working in their favor to be for them, a shelter in the midst of a storm. And someone that in the midst of the storm actually takes his children and puts them in a stronger position. You can imagine being tossed by the waves of the storm and he's bringing you in not only to shelter, but actually to put you on stable ground. He's a refuge and a strength like a big giant rock might be in the middle of an uncalm sea. You can see that same idea that He is our strength, He's working for us, He is with us. You can see that same idea repeated in verse 7 and verse 11. It says in both of those places, the Lord of hosts is with us. The idea is introduced to us in the very first verse and reintroduced to us twice over. That God is our refuge, He is with us, He is with us. But you understand the implication of that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you aren't going to be in any way affected by the storm or by the trouble. In fact, it means just the opposite. It actually ensures that you're going to be in the midst of the storm, but that He's going to provide the shelter therein. That the storm is going to be all around you. He is refuge in the trouble. But then he says, what is the the meaning of that? He says, therefore, we will not fear. Now, when we see all these cataclysmic events, these storms that he's talking about, and all the, the trouble, the earth gives way, the mountains moved into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam, mountains tremble, all of those things that are taking place that are cataclysmic events, tsunamis and all those kinds of things. They seem tremendous to us. But if we are really thinking through the Bible, we have to interpret what he's saying. One of the hard parts about the Psalms, and in particular this Psalm, are the images that are presented in the poetry. And so our inclination is to understand him to say, okay, when tornadoes are coming, then he is my protection. But that's not exactly what he's saying. If we're remembering our Bible, then you'll recall... In Genesis chapter 3, man and woman sin against God and as a result, man and woman are punished and even the earth is cursed because of man's sin. In Romans 8, which is in the New Testament, Paul tells us that the world, because of the sin of Adam, was subjected to futility. And what he means by that is God has placed a curse on the world. So, for the Christian, the cataclysmic weather events, these patterns that he's looking at, mountains being tossed into the sea and the seas roaring and foaming, and all of those kinds of things, are a, uh, the weather events that wreak havoc on the world. They themselves are presented as symbols to us, they're meant to jog your memory of what happened to the earth because of mankind's sin. So there's at least three things that these symbols of these weather events that he's talking about here, what they mean. The first is, is that it is symbols that the world is fallen. It's a symbol that the world is fallen. So it, it reminds us all of these tumultuous events in our world are part of what happens when the earth is cursed by sin itself. They're also symbols that we are mortal, that our life is a vapor, that these things can actually kill us. They can bring about death in our life. And third, they're a symbol of coming judgment in the world to come. They remind us that sin must be punished. Now that's not to say, like some of the prosperity hucksters on TV, that This weather event was the product of that person's sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that these weather events, the curse of the earth, brought about events like this that would bring such destruction and death. So when the psalmist gives this depiction of the worst of all possible events, cataclysmic judgments, he doesn't just mean that God is our refuge when the tornadoes come. He's saying that He's our refuge when everything in your life is shaken to the core and you are reminded that you live in a fallen world and it is brutal. That's when He's your refuge and strength. God is your refuge and strength when you find out your child isn't going to make it. He's your refuge and strength when the cancer comes back Again, He's your refuge and strength when your job was the one that was cut. God is your refuge and strength when your sinful addictions have crippled your marriage. God is your refuge and strength. He provides His people with strength when the effects of the sinful world threaten to overwhelm them. Meaning when calamity increases, and it's going to increase. The child of God not only has a resource of peace, but is also made strong in the midst of that calamity. This is not true of a person who is not a child of God. When life gets hard for the unbelieving, they might have a certain peace, They might be confident in the outcome, but what they don't do is come to depend on God more today than they did yesterday. That is not true for the unbelieving. He doesn't become a refuge for them. But in the reality, for the child of God, He is drawing you more and more to depend on Him in the midst of that calamity. And that is the refuge and strength. My wife... Uh, went to get a sonogram with our third child, Natalie, uh, just a few weeks before she was born. And the sonogram was the day before I led an overseas mission trip to Belgrade, Serbia. Wouldn't you know? That's how these things work out. So I didn't get a call or anything at home or at work or anything, and so I assumed everything went well, but when I got home, I could tell that she had been crying. And she told me that there were some irregularities on the sonogram and that she was being referred to a specialist next week, the week that I was going to be overseas. So we were told there were really four possibilities. It could be nothing. We didn't hear that one. It could be cystic fibrosis. It could be Downs or it could just be an intestinal abnormality which would require surgery immediately after Natalie was born. So I went to Serbia as planned, and I knew that when I was there, there could be a scenario where our baby was born while I was overseas. And so she, we, we, when I went overseas, she, we waited, and I was waiting to hear what the specialist might say. And as we waited, during that week after her appointment, while I was in Serbia, the dishwasher exploded and did thousands of dollars worth of damage to our kitchen. That's how these things go, isn't it? Why, why does it always happen like that, you know? Speaking of which, this sermon is actually brought to you by Farmer's Insurance. (laughs) I'm legally obligated still to say that, so uh, if you're in need of coverage. um. (laughs) So as I'm talking with my wife over FaceTime, I am watching the Lord be to her a refuge and strength. In the midst of all of this that was going on, my hair is on fire. That's what happened, actually. Is, that's why I'm bald today. But I'm worried and panicky. I'm leading these people in a foreign mission trip, and I'm barely even thinking about what we're doing over there. And I'm watching her deal with all of this, which had a tremendous amount of uncertainty to it, for some reason, they can't get the report back to you immediately, even though they see it on the screen, right? They make you wait like 10 weeks before you hear. Um, and, and all of this damage that's going on, and I'm, I'm thinking all of the worst things, and yet she remained calm, nine months pregnant, dealing with tremendous uncertainty, brought about tears. Now, if you're a believer, we could probably go around the room and, and I think everyone would probably have stories that are very similar to things like this that you also have experienced. But please understand that the difference between you and a non-believer, it's not just that you have peace in the midst of tumultuous situations or that there's not tears because there are. It's the kind of peace that leads you to depend more on God. It pushes you further into your relationship with God. You, you notice that feeling where you come to depend more on Him yesterday than, or today than you did yesterday. That is not the same situation for an unbeliever. It's a tremendous grace and mercy that He's giving to you in the midst of that tumult, in the midst of that chaos that He pulls you in closer and doesn't send you away. but it means that you become more convinced of the ultimate truth in the universe that if God is for me, then what or who could possibly be against me? And if He takes my child, I know that He's going to bring me in the midst of that kind of storm, which might be the worst kind of storm you could possibly go through, that He'll bring me in closer than He would otherwise that it will bring me in to depend more on him than I did in the previous days. But you understand that bringing you into the castle doesn't mean you can't hear the storm outside. It doesn't mean that it doesn't strike fear into your heart. But that bringing you in closer is meant to bring about a certain kind of fearlessness in you. God will provide his people with strength in affliction. But the second assurance that He gives us here is that God will provide His people with joy in the midst of persecution. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist gives us this image, and it can be a bit confusing there in verse 4. It it says that uh, a river is in the midst of this city. And it probably might bring to mind for you maybe Jerusalem, maybe the temple, things like that when you see the word city here, I don't think he's talking about a plot of land. I think what he means is a people. There is a a river whose streams make glad the people of God. And and the reason where I get that from is actually both Old and New Testament. I want to show you an example of this in the Old Testament and then an example in the New Testament. Isaiah uh, 60 verse 14. He says, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. These are the people of God that he's talking about. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So he's talking about, you see here in this passage, the the people of God, they're they're to be in Isaiah's prophecy of the future, they are to be called the city of the Lord, and they're called that by the people that have formerly afflicted them, persecuted them, or whatever. They're called the city of the Lord because that's the place, they are the place, in which God dwells. God dwells there, therefore that is his city, the city of God. God. As the psalmist says here, they have become a holy habitation of the Most High. So he has in mind a people who are the city of God. But then what's with this river thing? Well, in the New Testament, we see this come to fruition in that the people of God, the people who follow Christ, become His people. They become the living embodiment of of God's presence here on earth. God dwells in them. And John, uh, Jesus says this in John seven thirty eight. whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John goes on to explain by that, he means that the spirit takes up residence in them. So they both become a holy habitation of God. They are the city of God. And out of them flow streams of living water. They're happy, in other words. God has made them happy as He's dwelled in them. So depending on when this particular psalm was written, the earthly habitation of God was there in the temple in Jerusalem. But I, I think there's good reason to believe that many of these psalms, in fact the psalm we're reading today, I think, was written probably after the temple of Solomon was destroyed and the people were exiled into Babylon. But regardless, I think what the author is anticipating and what we now know is that you and I are a temple of the living God. We are God's holy habitation. He dwells in the hearts of His people. And as a result, He makes them glad, happy, in other words. But let's look at the main problem that's going on in this section, why we need to be happy, why this is a solution to our problems. If you look there in verse 6, it says that the nations are raging. You see that word raging? Nations rage? If you look back in verse 3, you see there the word roar. The waters are roaring. seas roar. It's the same word. Raging, roaring. It's the same word there. And so, in the first paragraph, it's the sinful, chaotic world that is raging or roaring against God's people. And in the second paragraph, it's the sinful nations that are raging and roaring against God's people. Well, then you see the word, uh, what, ha- what happens next? The word where it says the kingdoms totter. The word for totter there is the same word in the previous verse that said God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. She shall not be moved and totter. It's the same word. So in other words, what he's saying is the people of God are situated on God's steady rock, his city. And his city does not move. Why does his city not move? Because he lives there. Nothing can rock him. And you live there with him. He's brought you into his city, in other words. And that city does not totter or move. But the nations are at war with one another. And the kingdoms of this sinful world are constantly in flux. One is rising. Another one is being torn down. That one rises. And another one is being torn down in the process. And on and on it goes. It's constantly in flux. And so what happens at the end of this stanza? He utters His voice, the earth melts. So when the tottering of the nations has gone on long enough, God snaps His fingers and the earth goes to judgment. Whether it is the raging storms and the sinfulness of the world around us or the kingdoms that represent that sinfulness, Whatever it is, it melts and is purged with fire. So the point moves from a bleak situation of God's people in a fallen and sinful world being protected and even made strong, being drawn in to, be, to become more dependent on Him for strength. And now, it's not merely the affairs of life that are bringing them down, but they're caught up in the sinful warmongering of the pagan nations that are vying for power over and against the God of the universe. And God's people are caught up in it. But they're happy. Now, if I were you, and I was this week as I was reading this, I'm with you until the point where you tell me I'm happy in the midst of that. We're coming upon a holiday that we will celebrate on Tuesday, a day when our nation... Celebrates its independence from Britain. And we'll go to parades. We'll probably eat way more barbecue than we should. We will watch fireworks. We'll have people over, maybe, be quite the celebration. And we will do all these wonderful things for our nation's independence. But the day before that, tomorrow, And the day after that, Wednesday, we'll turn on the TV or we will read the news and we will see agenda after sinful agenda crammed down our throats over and over and over again. And we'll see nations at war with other nations. And we'll see and we'll hear every reason why you and I should be afraid. Why we should not feel independent at all. But we should feel afraid. We should cower in the corner. We should hug whatever sense of security we have. Lock every deadbolt We should do whatever we can to protect ourselves because you have every reason to be afraid. And we will realize, maybe, what a facade all the parade and all the fireworks really are. It's not freedom at all. It's fear. We don't live in a free world. We live in a sinful world. But for those of us in the kingdom of God, you understand. Every day is Independence Day. Every day is Independence Day. Because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on flesh, and He lived a perfectly righteous life, and He went to the cross, and there He bore the wrath of God that I deserved. And there on the cross, He set me free from the chains of sin and death, and made me the holy habitation of the Most High. And He set me free, and He whom the Son set free is free indeed. So I should expect the nations to rage. And I should pray for her salvation. But you understand that when one sinful agenda is put to rest and we celebrate... Maybe it's a Supreme Court ruling or maybe it's a law or maybe it's something that the state of Alabama does or something like that and we celebrate and we, it's an answer to prayer and that's great and that sinful agenda is put to rest. Another sinful agenda is going to sprout up in its place. And it's likely going to be worse than the one that was before it. And we'll lament that one too and it'll be caused to be afraid and cower in the corner. Because you understand the only way For a nation to be truly free has nothing to do with the Supreme Court. It has nothing to do with the laws of the land. It is to fall on their face before an almighty God, repent of their sin, and confess Jesus Christ as her Lord. And until then, she will stagger like the drunkard that she is until she falls like all the nations that have come before her. That's a harsh reality for patriots like us to realize that the nation that we live in, while probably in the global sense freer than any nation that we that has ever been on the face of the earth, is still at its core Babylon. It is not heaven. And she, like every other nation, is staggering and raging against the God that made her. And to be honest with you, we don't belong to that nation. Yes, our passports say U.S. citizen, maybe for most of us. But we don't belong to that nation or any other nation on this earth. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so therefore, while the nations rage, we have no fear. But you understand it's not just the nation that needs to repent. That citizenship in God's kingdom is available, but you too must repent. You don't get to stand over here and command the nation to repent and fall on its face before God while you get out scot-free. That's not how it works. The one that comes to the kingdom of God comes in repentance and confessing Christ as Lord above all transcending all rulers and all powers and authority he directs your life from here on out tells you where to go and where not to two assurances the people of god have he will provide his people with strength in affliction and joy in the midst of persecution and finally god will provide his people certain victory in the end look at verse 8 come this image that's presented us to us here at the end of this psalm. This is apocalyptic imagery. In verse 10, there's this command to us. He says, be still and know that I am God. Literally, it means fall limp. Be still, fall limp before God. Now, you might be thinking with the nations raging and with the mountains being thrown into the sea and with them all the waters roaring, how on earth could I possibly fall limp or let go or be still before the Lord? Well, the key is in verse 8. That's how he opens the stanza. He says, "Come, behold the works of the Lord, The invitation that He's giving to you here at the end of the psalm is an invitation to think about how the Lord has kept His Word in the past. It's looking back on all the things that He's done. How He's delivered His people out of Egypt. How He's led them through the Red Sea. How He delivered them through the desert and into the Promised Land. How He patiently bore with them for centuries of rebellion. How He lovingly sent them His Son knowing full well that the biggest problem any of us have is our own sinfulness. How He sent His Son to the cross to bear on His shoulders the wrath that we rightly deserve. Behold the works of the Lord. How He killed His own Son on your behalf. And Isaiah tells us He was pleased to crush Him. That by His stripes we might be healed. This gives us assurance of how sure the future is. When we look at the works of the Lord, when we behold them, we realize God has a great track record. Flawless, in fact. He has always been faithful. I had a professor in seminary who used to say this same thing over and over. If he said it once, he said it a hundred times. He he used to say, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what He will do in the future. Though He's too creative to do the same thing, the same way, twice. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what He will do in the future. Though He's too creative to do the same thing, the same way, twice. Come, behold His works. He's the one that causes wars to cease. But a ceasefire, you understand, is only a shadow of what is to come. He will be exalted among all the nations. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what He will do in the future. Though he's too creative to do the same thing, the same way, twice. And this gives us assurance that God will provide for his people certain victory. There is going to be a day, friend. When we're sitting here, maybe together, maybe, maybe it'll be on a Sunday morning. Maybe it'll be right now. And the rooftop is just blown off. And everyone sees coming to earth on a white horse the resurrected Christ. And there may be some, even in here, who are betting that that day will never come. And you think that what I just said is preposterous. How could that ever be? You understand, friend, that when that day does come, then it will be too late. What a tragic disappointment it would be for you to hear the words of the good news of Jesus Christ that he died for the punishment that you deserve. Confess him as Lord and repent. What a tragedy it would be for you to hear that and go away unbelieving. And wager everything in your life from now through eternity. Betting that that day will never come. What a tragedy it would be. For you to see that day when the war cease. When the seas are stilled. When the nations stop raging. When all of us look at all those things and celebrate because it's over, and you are weeping. What a tragedy it would be for that to happen. Why not rather confess him as Lord, long for the day when he finally makes all war cease, where there's no threat of nuclear catastrophe, Where you see your loved ones and you don't have to worry about whether you'll see them again. Why would you mourn on that day when you can hear the gospel and receive it now? Why? Let me ask you, what are you afraid of? Let's think about what this text is really saying to us. In each of these stanzas of this psalm, the believer is challenged to consider what God is actually doing in your life when bad things happen to you. In the first, He's giving you help, sheltering you. He's bringing you closer to Himself to depend more on Him. In the second stanza, He's making you glad in the midst of persecution and suffering. That's supernatural, you understand No one is glad in the midst of persecution unless the Spirit of God is there. You're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He's doing that. And in the third, he's encouraging us to focus on what God has done for us in the past and use it as assurance of what He will do for us in the future, that He will come back again. So all of this suffering that we go through in this life results in what? Well, for the Christian... It becomes God's way of drawing us closer to Him. So then I ask you, what do you have to fear? If I have these assurances, what do I have to fear? You understand, fearing the circumstances around you will change the choices that you make. If you really do fear the circumstances around you, it will alter who you are and the way that you behave. A person that fears being able to provide for his family will flee toward workaholism. He doubts at the end of the day that God will actually be the one to provide and to make him glad for his provision. A man who fears being truly known by others will be forever ensnared by the same sins. Because even though Christ might say you are forgiven, He fears that it's not true. So He can't tell anyone around Him what He's struggling with for fear they might condemn Him. A parent who fears what the world might do. Who fears that the Lord will not actually save his or her children will hover over them like a Blackhawk helicopter. A Christian who fears being an outcast amongst his peer group will refuse to share the Gospel even if he knows that it's the only hope of salvation. See, when you see sin in your life, you can trace it back to fear that you have that God is not true to His Word. That He is not sovereign. That He lost control in this situation. That He isn't enough. What is He asking of you? See, the reason that you're not obeying is because of your faithlessness and your fear. But in this psalm, Do you see any contingencies here? Does he say, like in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear unless our nation turns against Christianity and then we have every reason to fear. There may be other things going on in each of your lives that are giving you reason to fear. Medical reports, rebellious children, job cuts, retirement. Pregnancies, infertility, the loss of a child. But here's what this psalm tells us. God uses suffering to bring His children closer to Him. And in the end, His children will realize they need not be afraid because if God is for us, if He is with us, then who or what could possibly be against us? What do we have to fear? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word sits strong in our hearts today. That as we consider the works of your hand, all your mighty deeds in the past, that we might see that we have a great salvation in Christ, that we have a treasure that we have someone that works not only for us, but in us, through us, to us. Works in the world in ways that we don't even understand or comprehend. Works sometimes in spite of us. Who is not dependent on us for anything, but has chosen to save us. That he might love us and bring us into his family. That we have that. Would you cause that to sit on our heart with such a weight that it would bring about repentance? That it would bring about faith? I pray for each and every person in here who, whose heart might be hardened to the gospel coming in. That anything that might have been read or sung or said by me or prayed might open their eyes to a whole new reality of the world. That they might be saved. Professing faith in Christ for the first time. And I pray that when they look at us, members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, they might not see a people who cower in fear at every headline. But who courageously march into this world, not caring who can destroy the body. But only he who can destroy the soul. Make us courageous people like that. Make us fearless That nothing might hinder our ministry in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10:30 and Wednesday nights at 6:15.